Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. One of the ways we understand our Christian faith is through the telling of stories. In listening to stories and empathizing, we allow ourselves to become the characters within the story. And we see the world through their eyes, not just in a factual, sequential way, but also in an emotional, relational manner too. When we cry, laugh, become scared or get anxious on behalf of people when we watch movies, it's because in our mind we have become those characters. And so the storyteller is able to have us experience the life of someone else in order to appreciate a certain situation or a human condition. Stories are also culturally dependent. For example, if I was to tell a story about two farmers who had agreed to share some land and formalized that agreement in a treaty, that same story told in New York or in the UK or in Canada would have a very different meaning there than it does here in New Zealand, because we have as a central part of our shared culture the Treaty of Waitangi, which brings to mind all sorts of themes and issues for us. The storyteller may provide the actors in the script, but it is our own culture that brings the props and the lighting for the stage on which they perform. A good storyteller will use these cultural backdrops to insert understanding into a story and build instant rapport with the listener in a very simple way. So when Jesus was telling stories, he frequently referenced the history and culture of Israel, specifically the Old Testament, to remind them of what God had been repeatedly trying to say in an attempt to bring them back into alignment with what pleases God, rather than what mankind has decided pleases him. So to understand this morning's story or parable from Jesus, we're going to go back briefly and review a couple of key histories that would have been front and center in the mind of the listeners in order to tune our ears into their ears and hopefully hear what Jesus was wanting them to hear in his story as he used these cultural backdrops. Okay, Genesis chapter one. In In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and so creation occurs and carries on for six days. And at the end of it, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Then God makes a man from the dust of the ground, breathes into him, and the man becomes a living being. Next, God plants a garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Next, if a man is going to work in the garden with God, he needs help in a companion, and none of the animals are up to the task. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, And we've just seen, by the way, God call creation very good. But here the woman is calling the forbidden fruit good. The woman is overriding what God has said with what she wants. It's not our job to determine what is good and acceptable to God. It's our job to listen to him and to obey, trusting that his commandments lead to goodness. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In English, we sometimes say the naked truth, 
And this is what Adam and the woman are suddenly and painfully confronted with. And so they attempt to deal with the problem themselves by hiding their nakedness and covering themselves with fig leaves. And then God turns up. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So welcome to the world's first domestic argument. Adam takes no responsibility and distances himself from the woman, even blaming God for her creation. And the woman claims that she was tricked when in fact, it was her own eyes that saw the fruit, and she herself declared that it was good when it wasn't. What follows is the crystal clear, on point, precise justice of a holy God who has just been disobeyed by his creation. After dealing with the serpent, God turns to the woman. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So we're not just talking here about the effort required to give birth or to grow crops, but the entire human effort required to survive. Life is hard, work is stressful, families are difficult, so my children tell me. Um, businesses fail, viruses put us into lockdown. Rather than the blessing of an enjoyable partnership with God, we strive until we die. As Morrissey said, I was looking for a job, and then I found a job, and heaven knows I'm miserable now. <laughs> God then banishes the man and the woman out of the Garden of Eden and into exile. And that's usually where we end the story, which is a shame because it's not where the story actually ends. As they leave the Garden of Eden, heads hung low in anger, division, sorrow, remorse, and regret, something happens. Adam looks at the woman and he gives her a name, Eve, because she will become the mother of all the living. For the first time, he gives her value and personhood, knowing that it's her that will keep the human story going. God is there too. He takes some animal skins and makes them clothes, sufficient for living outside of Eden. Moments before, he was the holy God, keeping his word with laser precision over his disobedient children. And yet here we also find him caring for those same children, made in his image and needing his help. And so we reach chapter four of Genesis. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now for the observant, something fundamental has happened here, and it's got nothing to do with Adam and Eve, but with God himself. During creation in chapter one, God's name in Hebrew is Elohim, which is the Hebrew title meaning divine creator or the greatest of all the spiritual beings. And he's given that name because that is what he's doing. He's creating and ordering. In our English translations, you can see this when his name is translated simply as God. During the Garden of Eden in chapters two and three, his name is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is God's personal name, like Bob or Fred or Jane. So in effect, we are introduced to Yahweh, who is God. He walks with them in the garden, talks with them, and eventually punishes them. In our English translations, this is translated as Lord God. However, in chapter four, Adam and Eve, 
have children. Yep, have children, and we continue with the divine story. And at this point, the name of God is simply Yahweh. The Elohim has been dropped, and so after expulsion from the garden, we see God set aside his creator, his divine glory, his Elohim. And he engages with mankind at a personal level as Yahweh as they start to build up and live their lives outside of Eden. So where else in our Bibles do we read of someone putting aside their divine glory and being present with mankind to support them? Someone call it out. Jesus, yep, yeah, someone else call it out. Yeah, cool, I heard the second one there, that's two witnesses, cool. So we do think that maybe Jesus is Yahweh. Yes, we serve a trinity, but that trinity is one. Do we think that the same person who parted the waters also walked upon them? A while ago, I had the privilege of working in Saudi Arabia and spent some time in a place called Mikhail. Um, I've got a photograph here from TripAdvisor of what it looks like. It's nice, eh? Some lights, bit of countryside. However, when I got there, I took this photograph. And that's what it really looks like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the people are lovely. They truly are the hospital and warm. But the town itself needs a bit of TLC. Um, here's a picture again off the internet of the hotel, the bathroom. And that was kind of nice. We'd all like to stay there, I assume. Um, however, when I got there, I took this picture of the bathroom. <laughs> <clears throat> Honestly, it was um, like something off the movie Saw. There was, um, the sewage came up through the, the, the smell, through the shower, uh, ah, rotten cabbages coming. It was just horrible. Um, anyway, I remember once I'd been traveling for a few days, and I hadn't had much sleep at all. And it was 45 to 50 degrees. Um, and I had what we'll just refer to as an upset stomach. You know, we know what we're talking about. Um, so I went to the toilet, and, and the toilets over there are a bit different to here, and it's a metal pipe in the ground that you hold onto behind your back, and then there's a couple of foot plates and then a hole, and you can kind of probably guess how that works. So, um, so I'm there holding onto this metal pipe, feeling unwell, trying not to fall in over this hole. I remember thinking to myself, now I bet Jesus never had to put up with this. And immediately I heard him reply, yes, I did. <laughs> now, I rarely hear God's voice like that, but there's no mistaking it when he does speak. I remember laughing to myself and thinking, of course you did. You lived here in the Middle East. You ate the same food that I've been eating and suffered the fatigue and discomfort of travel and had to use toilets probably less pleasant than this one. The same God who created the heavens and the earth left his glory behind in order to rescue us, putting up with the same discomfort and hardship that is involved in being human and in joining in our curse, in living and traveling in places like Mikhail, just so he could rescue us. And we see this right here at the very beginning in Genesis, as Yahweh Elohim is simply called Yahweh. So we have the first telling of a story of a God who provides, a humanity who wants the gift but ignores the giver, only to experience pain and their own inadequate attempts to resolve it themselves, which requires the personal intervention of God to rescue them and to restore them. Okay, time for our second story. A few generations later, a man called Isaac had two sons, Jacob, which means deceiver, and Esau. While he's on his deathbed and with failing eyesight, Isaac asks his older brother, sorry, his older favorite son, Esau, to go and get him some meat and make his favorite meal then give it to him. And in return, Isaac was going to give Esau, his son, his blessing. So off Esau goes. Meanwhile, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, favored the younger son, Jacob. And so she told Jacob to dress up like his brother, go to his father Isaac and pretend to be Esau, give him the food in an attempt to steal the blessing. He went, Jacob, went into his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? 
Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you're really Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he said. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob gives Isaac the food. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. Then Jacob leaves. And Esau returns and both Esau and his dad realize what has just happened. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me too. Oh, my father. But Jacob replied, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken your blessing. So Esau declared, is it not right? Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me twice. He took my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So we see the same pattern playing out here as before. There's provision, but Jacob wants, saw what he wanted and illegitimately took it. What happens then is the relational breakdown and family division, just like the Garden of Eden. So Jacob flees to his uncle's house a long way away, where he falls head over heels in love with Rachel, and he marries her. But in the morning after the wedding night, he rolls over and he sees that instead of Rachel, he has been tricked and given Leah, Rachel's older sister instead. Jacob's character has come home to roost. Measure for measure, he has been deceived in the same way as he deceived his own father. Just as his face was hidden by Isaac's blindness, Leah's face was hidden from Jacob by the darkness of the night. Following on, Jacob marries Rachel, whom he truly loves, and Leah gets pushed to the side. As Rich Mullins sings, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Rachel, she loved him, and Leah was just there for dramatic effect. Family breakdown and pain and complication develops as Jacob lives in exile. Jacob continues to work for Laban, Rachel and Leah's dad, and over a period of time, he cares for his own flocks more than Laban's, and in today's commercial language, we would say he asset strips Laban. Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that our father had. He has become rich with what had belonged to our father. Jacob saw that Laban did not show him as much favor as he did before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to those of your family, and I will be with you. Yahweh has told Jacob to go back to his father's house. And again, the specific use of Yahweh as a name without the Elohim gives us a clue that God is drawing close. However, in nautical terms, Jacob has been sailing on gentle winds and calm seas so far, but the clouds are gathering, the barometer is dropping, and a storm is on its way. So Jacob is heading back home, and he's really scared of Esau. He hasn't seen him in over 20 years, and now God is telling him that he has to face up to Esau. The face he hid from his father Isaac, he has to show to Esau. The storm is gathering ahead of him, and it was not part of Jacob's plan and there's tension in the air. So he tries to solve the problem himself. He sends gifts ahead of him in an attempt to appease Esau. I don't think he was particularly sorry or remorseful, but he was scared for his life. But those men with the gifts returned, saying that Esau was coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. In great fear and distress, 
Jacob divided his people into two camps, as well as the flocks and the herds and the camels. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one camp, then the other camp can escape. During the night, Jacob gets up and he sends his family across the river ahead of himself. And so he's at the rear of the group, nice and safe. And then God turns up. So Jacob was left all alone, and there a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he struck the socket of Jacob's hip and dislocated it as they wrestled. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob, he replied. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and men, and you have prevailed. And Jacob requested, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, indeed, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Have you noticed, by the way, we have now moved from nighttime to daytime? As the sun rose above Jacob, now called Israel, he is in broad daylight for all to see. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming towards him with 400 men. So he divided the children amongst Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph, his favorites, at the rear. But Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down seven times as he approached his brother. God has just stepped into the situation, and we see an instant transformation in Jacob, now called Israel. He had hid his face from his father to deceive him, but now God has shown his face to Jacob, who has lived to tell the tale. He has been in the dark, wrestled with God, who has challenged him that if he's going to meet his brother, he has to do it as the person God wants him to be, not the old, deceiving, cowardly self. The real Jacob, the one he's meant to be, wins the battle. I don't think God would have let the old Jacob win but the new one he does. Jacob is now a new person, signified by his new name, just like Eve was when she received the name. And he goes through the water of the river and transitions from hiding in the night to walking in the day. So if you can accept it, he's the first person in the Bible to become born again and baptized. Instead of hiding behind his family and his possessions, he places himself at the front of his family and walks forward to openly show his face to his brother, but still expecting the worst. Esau, however, ran to him, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. And so we see the same pattern of provision, disobedience, exile, pain. God turns up, restores and reconciles, just as we saw in creation. And this pattern continues throughout the, old, the entire Old Testament, from individuals to families, to tribes, and eventually to the whole nation of Israel, who are excluded from their homeland, just as Adam and Eve and Jacob were exiled, with only a small remnant turning, returning back. So then God turns up. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus tells them this story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. All right, so straight away, we're thinking about Isaac and Esau. There's two sons. The younger one wants the inheritance. Familiar ground. We've got our story backdrop. His father isn't dead yet, and he wants the inheritance. He's keen on the gift, but not the giver. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, 
set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. He literally cashed up, sold the inheritance property around the village, which would have made the arrangement with his father public, bringing shame to his father, and he headed off. He leaves in a hurry, just like Jacob did. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who had sent him to, his field to, sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Life is painful when we live in exile. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet here I am, starving for death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. The prodigal son listens to his physical senses. He comes to his senses. His hunger, his aching body, the cold nights, and he decides on a strategy to return home and see if he can get a job. Just like Jacob, he's not really sorry. He's not really remorseful. He assumes that the offense he has caused his father will prevent him from becoming a son again. Just like Jacob, Adam and Eve, he tries to solve the problems in his own strength with the strategy of, Dad, can I have a job? However, there's a cultural problem. Losing your inheritance to the Gentiles was a specific shame and a horror for a Jewish boy, described in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And now, my sons, be watchful of your inheritance that has been bequeathed to you, which your fathers gave to you. Do not give your inheritance to the Gentiles, lest you be regarded as humiliated in their eyes and foolish, and they trample you, for they will come to dwell among you and become your masters. To deal with the shame that this shame, the culture of the time had a specific ceremony called kazaza, which means cutting off. And it was specifically for punishing a Jewish boy who had lost his inheritance to the Gentiles. It would be performed by the village upon his return home to the village. During the ceremony, the village would take a large earthenware pot filled with burned nuts and corn and break it in front of him, shouting, so-and-so, Bob, Fred, Terry, whatever his name is, is cut off from his people. As Kenneth Bailey writes, the son's projected solution is grossly inadequate. The prodigal thinks the problem is the lost money. His anticipated solution trivializes the problem, which is not merely a matter of broken law, but about broken relationship. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So this reminds us of Esau and Jacob. It's the same twist in the plot, the unexpected ending. But the stakes in this instance are much higher. It's not just the son who bears the cost here, but it's also the father. The father knows what the culture and the local community require of him. This is not a private family matter like it was with Jacob and Esau. He is required to consider his son lost and dead. However, the father doesn't let local culture prevent him from being a good father. And in the same way that Elohim becomes Yahweh and God shows his face to Jacob, the father now draws near to the son, the exile. If the father didn't act, the village would have cast the son out. So in an act of public humility for everyone to see, the father runs to the son and in doing so immediately changes the son's future. The father's counterculture humility is the price that is paid to welcome his child back into the family and also deals with a real issue, which isn't about food and employment, but about sonship and relationship. So the prodigal son experiences the same response from the father as Jacob did with Esau and Adam and Eve did with Yahweh. In telling this story, Jesus is overriding the local culture of the time with stories from scripture 
and bringing his listeners back to the character of God. The father said to the son, sorry, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The prodigal had his speech prepared where he's ready to ask for a job. But when he experiences his father's love, undeniable, he stops speaking and changes. In a moment of genuine repentance, he surrenders his plans to save himself as a hired servant and lets his father find him. He comes finally to an acceptance of being found. His anxieties over searching for an answer regarding employment are replaced with a peace that comes from being accepted as a family member. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. The father's first act is one of restoration. Just like Yahweh with Adam and Eve, the father clothes him. He also gives him a ring of authority and in an instant turns him from a hungry, weak social outcast into a son with authority and position in the family and therefore within the local community. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. The appropriate, correct thing to do was to maintain the dignity of the community and hold the Kazaza ceremony. And for the son to be rejected and considered dead, what the father does is sacrifice his own dignity and proclaim the boy to be found and alive. Jesus addresses the Pharisees' issue of eating with sinners, but takes it up a notch. The prodigal wasn't just a sinner, which would have required the Pharisees not to eat with him, but he was a traitor. And now Jesus is saying, God's transforming love is for these people too, and God wishes to eat with them. If today you're feeling the pain of not being in God's family, may I encourage you to consider Jacob and consider the prodigal son, and to walk in the light and come home to the father. Show your face to him, complete with all the mistakes, the pain, the damage, and the discomfort, and admit, like I've had to, and many, many, many others have as well, that we're rubbish at being human, that it hurts, and ask him to rescue you and allow yourself to be found by him. Now, if you've lived a sensible, tidy life and are finding it hard to relate to the prodigal son, no problems, do not feel left out. God loves sensible people too. (laughs) Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So even the people around the household have got the spirit of what the father has done. It's great. The older brother, however, becomes angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, we see the father humbling himself to meet a wayward son, leaving the banquet that he is hosting in front of friends and family to restore another son to himself. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property and prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's not fair. The older brother has distanced himself from the father just as much as the prodigal. And in a massive stroke of irony, he is following the same laws and rules that the prodigal followed. If I'm a good person, I get to be a son. If I'm bad, I don't. And so he pleads to the law and he complains that he hasn't received what is right. He thinks the love shown to his brother that he is jealous of should also be available to him through the law as a result of his good behavior, but he is hopelessly wrong. Anything that we hold up in front of God and say, because I did this or because I am that, with the express purpose of gaining his favor, is just fig leaf garments. They're just useless gifts to appease someone that we assume is angry at us. That behavior, if allowed, 
leads to closed in-group culture where we eat a young goat with our best friends and inside cliques. My son, the father, said, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so the story ends with a father appealing to the older son. We don't see how the brother responds and it's an unfinished story with an unanswered question. Who is this parable for? Who is the older brother and how should he respond? It's not the tax collectors and the sinners because they understand what God is like because they've heard the story of the prodigal son. The lingering question the people that Jesus wants a response from in this parable are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Are they able to identify with the older brother? And if so, what's Jesus asking them to do in return? That's a question I'll also leave unanswered, but we can all mull it over. Except to say, I think we all have a bit of prodigal in us, and we all have a bit of Pharisee in us, and we all need to respond to our father. Can I have the wonderful music team come up, please? Thanks. And so, by reaching back into Israel's history, Jesus has reminded them who God is and who they are. Of this pattern of fell, or fall and reconciliation, first told in creation, and then also with Jacob. In both cases, God knew what they needed even before they asked. You know, what defines our Christian faith isn't that we believe in God, but that God believes in us, prodigals and Pharisees alike. And as the father that won't even hold back his own dignity, if that's the cost required, to sit down and have dinner with his family. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.